I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to Etco. I'm James Atkinson, Senior Brand Manager at DKI Witness. And I'm Lucy Richards, Senior Editor at DKI Witness. And welcome to Where to Go, where every fortnight we find out more about the world's favourite travel destinations with the people who know those places best. And today we are going somewhere a little bit different. Um, uh, you know, you usually hear us going to cities, countries, etc. Mm. We are sticking in London. Yes. But we are really, really zoning in on uh, <laughs> the world famous Kew Gardens, officially known as the Royal Botanic Gardens. Um, so really, really world famous. And the reason we're kind of celebrating Kew today is uh, because Kew features heavily in DK Witness's new book, Gardens of the World, which yes. kind of uh, goes all around the world. It profiles 67 of the world's best gardens. Um, and it is beautiful, the book. It is, it is so, so beautiful. Stunning. It's just gorgeous. And, you know, seeing as we've all turned so much to green spaces over the past mm. couple of years, I think us team at Deho Witness wanted to celebrate all of the gardens of the world, all those spaces that we've all been turning to um, over the past couple of years. And honestly, it's just the most gorgeous book. And the spaces we've been missing as well. I mean, yes. it's, yeah, yeah. just flick through it and um, it kind of really reaffirms like, you know, our relationship with green spaces, how we, you know, how varied they can be, how, yeah. uh, you know, from jungles to to really refined French gardens yeah. to uh, to big American prairie gardens to uh, fantastic ones in Australia. like uh, to, English to, uh, country gardens. English country gardens, don't forget those. I mean, it's just diverse. It's weird. It's wonderful. Um, and yeah. yeah, so, you know, one of the most famous ones in the book, one of the ones that everyone kind of knows about is Kew. And we really wanted to, you know, like kind of speak to a garden and get that perspective. Kew's mm. home to over 50,000 living plants, many of them endangered species. They do amazing work around the world. Um, and it's also an incredible place to visit. And have yeah. you been, Lucy? I have. And and actually, funny enough, I went last summer on one of the hottest days of the year. So I went where I think I'd sort of slightly had enough of my local green spaces. So I met some friends at Kew Gardens and we had a picnic. And it was, you know, when you picture those perfect sort of idealised romantic summer days where 
the sort of like dappled sun and it's hazy and there are sort of, you know, wasps buzzing around in a pleasant way, in a horrible way. And you're having like scones and strawberries. I had that experience in Kew Gardens. It was a magical. It was beautiful. Um, <sighs> and to be honest, we didn't even make it as far as sort of the glass houses. We were too busy just chatting and basking in sunshine. And that was perfect. It was lovely. Well, Let's get ready to, you know, find out a bit more of what lies beyond <laughs> it just being a lovely sunny place for a, for a lovely sunny day. Um, so, yeah, I thought I would just sort of start by looking at w- the intro in, in mm. Gardens of the World to Q and just reading a little bit of it. So uh, Gardens of the World says, home to the world's most diverse collection of living plants and internationally renowned for its groundbreaking botanical research. Q is so much more than a garden. It is a beacon that's been lighting the way in plant science for centuries. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I say, I think that, you know, there's lots of important work at Q that we often don't know about, but it's a place that everyone knows about. And so we're delighted to be joined by one of the a very important member of the team at Q Gardens to dig i'm sorry for my pun a little bit more <laughs> behind the the wonderful history the you know the work that kind of goes on within the gardens uh so joining us live from southwest london where the gardens are based is richard barley uh q's director of gardens who's going to take us for a deep dive into you know what q is all about for the next 40 minutes or so so welcome richard welcome richard hello hello Thank you so much for joining the podcast. Um, it's really, really brilliant to have someone from Kew Gardens actually on the podcast. We're really, really excited. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, in a like, we're, we're still going to talk about destination, but in a slight tweak, change to our normal format. We're going to be talking about all things Kew this afternoon, from the beautiful displays of rare plants to the urgent need for preserving biodiversity and lots in between that might surprise you. Uh, so yeah, let's get to it. So Richard, let's start with getting to know you a bit. Tell us about your role at Kew. Thank you. So I'm Director of Gardens at Kew, which means I have responsibility overall for, for all the, the growing bits at the Kew side, all the, the plants, you know, outdoors and, and mm-hmm. in the glasshouses, conservatories. Also our learning programs, the school programs, the volunteers, the community mm-hmm. uh, engagement, interpretation, garden design. Um, School of Horticulture, importantly, where we train the next generation mm. of horticulturists. Mm. Um, so, so it's a mixture of horticulture, um, plant conservation and such, and, and also sort of more um, people-based activities, um, so particularly with the school's programs. Yeah, because I, I think, um, uh, you know, something about Q is that it is innovative and it is kind of moving on the world of like plant science in, in many, many ways. And I guess it's interesting you talking about the next generation there, because I think Q has been long associated with like kind of training horticulturalists and, uh, and forwarding plant science. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we've been, we've been training professional horticulturists for over a hundred years, but um, it's one of the most important things I think that we do is ensuring that there are people coming through. There is mm-hmm. a, a younger generation who actually have the essential skills that are needed to, to understand understand plants in the first place, but then how to grow them. How do you get something that's, you know, possibly rare, possibly threatened with extinction? How do you sort of crack that code to, to work out how to grow that plant? Because you can't mm-hmm. always just go to the manual and, and look it up no. and say, oh, that's how you grow a pea or whatever it is. Often it's a lot more difficult than that. Um, so we train young young horticulturists, we train scientists through our masters and, and PhDs, 
uh, within Q's plant science program. And, and of course, importantly also, we, we have a, you know, thousands of young children come through our schools programs every year. And, and to me, that's what brings the site to life. You know, you see the, the mm. kids coming in, you know, two by two at the gate and their eyes light up and, and their mouths drop open. And, and for some kids, this is this is the most special day of, of the whole year. And some of them actually say, you know, this is the best day of my life when they come in. And that is just so important and so special because even though mm. a place like Kew is so historical and, and has such layers of sort of significance, you know, UNESCO World Heritage Site and such, it is about the living world and mm. it's about mm. people and plants and the interactions and fungi and the interactions and all of that. And, and I think that the sooner people learn that, you know, or learn some aspects of it, the, the better their lives will be. Absolutely. I mean, that must be so rewarding as well to see. Um, and so, uh, you know, you've talked about the kind of history of Q. What about your history with Q as well? When did you join and, and uh, what were you doing before? So I'm not quite as old as, as Q. <laughs> I feel it sometimes, but I, I came here in 2013, actually. And um, so I've been here almost nine years. And I worked in Melbourne in, in mm. Victoria, state of Victoria in Australia prior to that for about 30 years with the Royal Botanic Gardens in Melbourne, mm. Um, mm. sort of the, the southern hemisphere, roughly equivalent. Um, and then for three years I was CEO of Open Gardens Australia, which is it's the sort of antipodean equivalent of the National Garden Scheme, so mm. people opening their private gardens for, for charity, um, which was fascinating. It, it was a, a national role. It took me all across the length and breadth of the country um, and, and sort of, you know, meeting a lot of people in communities, sharing their gardens, sharing their, their, their learning about plants. But, but then this opportunity came up to come over to Kew um, and take up this extraordinary role, which at the time was Director of Horticulture and it has sort of evolved from that time to be Director of Gardens. So I came over here with my wife and daughter um, and we've lived here at Kew um, since that time. Fantastic. How lovely. I mean, do you actually live, do you live in Kew Gardens? We do, yeah. We, oh, we live amazing. in a, an old cottage. It was actually originally the housekeeper's cottage for Kew Palace and the White Palace that wow. used to be here also. So both royal uh, residences. And, and so this was where the housekeeper lived. It was built about 1700, I think. Wow. Um, and it's it's sort of just in front of Kew Palace. So our view over the kitchen sink, as it were, is, is of the, the front of the building, which is, I have to say, rather special. I mean, yes. you know, you've become a little bit blasé, but, but then... <laughs> Uh, it's, you have to remind yourself where you actually are and what your back garden actually is. Yes, that, that's amazing. That is quite incredible. And um, I mean, uh, like, obviously, it's a huge step to come all the way from Australia to Kew. But I think that, in a way, almost says about the stature of Kew in and of itself. It is, it's a globally famous, uh, well, it's more than just a garden as well. It's, a, it's you know, an enormous... A community, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it is. And, and certainly, I, you know, through my time at the Botanic Gardens in Melbourne, I'd always known of Kew. Mm. Uh, I'd visited here once or twice when I was able to, uh, but but it's always held in, in such sort of esteem, um, and, and, mm. and also a lot of gardens, you know, Melbourne, um, but, but also around the world have, have had long-standing connections to Kew mm. right from the 18th century through to now. Um, so, so, you know, people have come and gone, plant material has come and gone, uh, yeah. letters by the thousands, of course, have come and gone mm -hmm. up until email. Um, 
So, so it was. It, it's you know, it, it's sort of a, a path that has been trodden before, but yeah. certainly for us, it was a, a big decision, and but but one we are very excited to to undertake and and to load up our our kit and come over here. Fantastic, amazing. And I'm going to ask you a question, Richard, which I don't think you can uh, probably answer. But what what do you love most about working at Q? Oh. Um, Look, it's it's going to be it's going to be a few things. I'm afraid it's going to be the place, <laughs> and I, when I say yeah. place, I mean two places because, of course, we're Q and Wakehurst, and, and Wakehurst mm-hmm. down in West Sussex is is special in its own right. So, the places, the plant collections um, mm. are, are just extraordinary. I mean, we have the greatest diversity of plants on any place on the planet right here at Q, and mm. and so anyone who likes plants or has an interest in them, this is this is like a, you know, this this is the sort of little piece of heaven and, and the people um mm. you know we we work with extraordinary people who many of whom have dedicated their lives um to to the, their work to to unlocking the secrets about plants to growing plants to creating displays to describing new species you put all of that together underlaid by a, a unesco world heritage site with mm. layers of, of extraordinary structures and history and I mean, for goodness sake, Julius Caesar crossed the river here in about 52 <laughs> AD to defeat the Britons. I mean, it, it's an amazing um, uh, sort of place where stuff has happened over yeah. the centuries. And and so to be in the midst of all of that, so I'm not answering your question at all because you said one thing and um, I've given <laughs> you, you half a, few, a dozen. You, you can have a few, that's fine. Yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't worry too much about that. I mean, you haven't even mentioned in that your the view from your kitchen window as well, which I think is probably <laughs> right. important there. Um, well, see, I associate that with, with doing the dishes, which which might just take the gloss <laughs> off fair. it. Yeah. Um, and are, you, are there any kind of, we're going to talk a bit, a bit about what kind of what makes Q special in a second, but are there like kind of, is there any you've learned about Q that listeners might not know or might have like never have come across before? Yeah I, I mean there, there's I'm always learning things to be honest I, I think you know you you only need to turn a page in a book or, or look look under a cover or something and, and, and you find something new so I've discovered a few things that, that I wasn't aware of one is that while we generally give the date of 1759 as, as mm. the establishment of Kew as a botanic garden, that's when Princess Augusta said we will have a plant collection and, you know, it's set about mm. being botanic garden. In fact, of course, plants have been collected here for some time before that. Her mm. late husband, Frederick, Prince of Wales, had been gathering plants here since the 1730s. But if you go mm. back 60, 70 years prior to that, there was a house here on site with a garden that belonged to Sir Henry Capel and people would travel a, a long distance to come and visit the garden. So ah. so the, the, the sort of the pattern of Kew being a place to come and visit an impressive garden goes back yeah. way beyond 1759. It's probably at least another 100 years before wow. that. So, you know... That it, as is so often the case, there's never a particular start point, you know, when you mm-hmm. say this is the thing, unless it's someone firing a cannon. But things often evolve over time, and, and that's the nature of Q. So it's partly that. It's mm-hmm. it's partly that actually Q is two separate properties with a, a road up the middle with, with walls on either side of the road, so entirely separated. The, the eastern side was Princess Augusta's Botanic Garden. Mm-hmm. The western side was joined to the deer park to the south, so it was sort of pleasure ground, forest, what have you, mm-hmm. um, capability brown and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And then it wasn't until 
around about 1800 that the the, gar- the two halves were united. The road was removed as a public road, although it still exists as an internal path. The walls were taken down and the two bits were put together and, and there you have Kew as a whole piece of land, uh, mm. almost at the size it is now. Um, it's now about 330 acres, but the last bit was added in the late 1800s and that was from a gift from Queen Victoria of that bit of woodland down in the corner. So... So it's probably things like that. I mean, people may not know we had a hermitage with, with a resident hermit, hermit in it from, from the mid-1700s. Um, his name was Stephen Duck and he was a poet of, of not great um, quality as far as I can read, but, <laughs> but he was resident there and he used to come out and recite poetry and, and his wife would sort of tidy up in the background. Um, and he, he didn't have a stellar career, it has to be said, but... Uh, but the hermitage itself existed until I think the second half of the 1800s before it was finally sort of dismantled and, and probably turned into other things. Wow. Yeah. Um, I love how, like, it, even without his skills, Stephen Duck has lived on uh, yeah. <laughs> all of this time. Uh, I'm trying to wonder what his wife would be clearing up as well. What was he doing whilst reading that? Well, I, I, I think he was there as as the sort of the front man, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, sort of sprouting the poetry and behaving like a hermit, and, and she was... Um, if you if you like being the sort of stage manager and and explainer to 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 people of you know what he was doing and why it was <laughs> why it was important <laughs> would have been would have been quite a sight I'm sure fantastic maybe well maybe you can bring it bring it back some <laughs> um, uh, cool okay well we're going to um, uh, thanks for that that's a brilliant little intro to yourself and Q and let's talk a little bit more about about the gardens themselves. So Richard, uh, what would you say, and this is going to be another difficult question, what makes Kew so special and what are some of the rare species you have on display that you can teach us about? So why is Kew special? Um, I I guess you you need to bear in mind several things. One is we're a UNESCO World Heritage Site, so Mm. Kew has been recognised for for unique qualities, you know, special values that meet the criteria for, for UNESCO. It, it's a place of great history, as I've said. It has extraordinary structures within it. You know, the Palm House alone, one of the world's most beautiful and iconic conservatories, the Temperate House, the, mm. which is the, the largest surviving Victorian glass house in the world. Um, you know, the, the, the herbarium collection, the, 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 the site itself. Um, so, so it's partly about that. It's, it's certainly about the collections and the mm. diversity of the collections, live collections, preserved collections, the science that goes on, the, the whole nature of how that all works together, um, you know, in a, in a very sort of contemporary way. Mm. Um, but, but within that, within our plant collections, we have some extraordinary things that, that are in some cases now extinct in the wild. Mm. Um, and, and so that places a great responsibility on, on our horticulturists to ensure that whatever the live survivors are that, that that we take great care and we we seek to find ways of course to propagate to to grow more of them to to protect that that particular species from loss mm. it's not always successful i should say because the very thing sometimes that tips a species towards the brink of extinction is because it's not easy to to keep sure. it alive you know it, or or there might be a, a pest a disease or, or something that that um that is specific to that plant, and sometimes that well, often they've come from an from an island flora. So, 
Um, if you imagine an island out in the middle of the ocean, it has its flora that's evolved over mm. millions of years. And then if you introduce goats or rats or people or, or what have you, very quickly the whole apple cart can be upset. You can lose whole rafts of things. Um, and that's that's often what happens. So, so a, a number of the species that are of really high conservation value come from islands, uh, you, you know, isolated islands out in oceans around the world. Mm. And, and one, for example... Um, is a palm that we're, we're looking at currently. It's in the palm house. It's called Ravenia mori. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're just trying to verify at the moment that, that the species we have growing may be the only surviving individual of it in the world. Um, but, but we're going through a process to, to see whether anyone else in a botanic garden or arboretum anywhere has another one. Wow. And then possibly to go and say, okay, let's let's send a, a troop, let's let's join up with with the people in in the local area where the palm grows on Grand Camore mm. Island um, between Madagascar and Mozambique. Mm-hmm. Go there and have a bloody good hard look for it, and, and hopefully to find it in the wild. But at least if it's not there, then we have to be extra, 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 especially careful about the one we've got here, which unfortunately, of course. Um, that they have separate male and female, um, mm. so they're dioecious. Um, ours is a male, I think. So, so we can't we can't get seed because because we don't I have see. the female. We can't. We there's nothing to pollinate. Yeah. Um, so, so if we can find another one, if we can find you know a breeding pair, as it were, that wow. that's the start of then working towards preserving it in a greater number. Um, but but that's a really interesting one. Of course, it's in the palm house. It's about. Bit over ten meters tall. Yeah. One of our big projects coming up, we're currently planning for, is, is full restoration of the palm house. Um, and to do that, we need to move everything out. And so you can imagine, oh, yeah, a ten meter tall palm, which is possibly the last surviving example in the world. Yeah. We're going to have to be really, really, really careful in what we do with that palm. That that it, we don't, you know. We don't do things to, to jeopardise its survival. I mean, try, lifting it out on its own is, is, is then starts to become a little risky. So sure. these are all things we have to weigh up. Um, you know, at the other end of the scale, of course, we have something like the, the dwarf water lily, that uh, Nymphaea thermarum, that only grew in the wild at the edge of one hot spring in Rwanda in Central Africa. Wow. Um, and then about 10 years ago, one of the local village people diverted the water out of the hot spring and the water level dropped and the wild population died out. But fortunately, we had a, a small population of, of the plants here at Kew because we'd been sent seed um, from a German botanist in this case. They'd collected the seed. They'd had difficulty growing the plant back home in Germany. They sent some over to Kew. Some of our horticultural staff here, um, Carlos Magdalena was the main person, Mm. worked out the combination of factors you needed to to uh, work with to get the plant to germinate and then to keep growing. So we have collections of that plant here. It's extinct in the wild now, but we've shared it with other botanic gardens just to ensure, again, it's about survival of the yeah. species into the future. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 how, do, how do you even go around? I mean, that in and of itself just shows the network of Q, the fact that you get you can get a German botanist going to find something in Rwanda that then, you know, then you can ultimately help to save that plant as well. That's pretty Well, it's, it's interesting with botanic gardens. I'm sure it's probably, the, well, it certainly is the same with zoos, of course. 
you, you have a we have a very strong network around the world. Um, you know, there's a lot of collaboration, a lot of exchange of ideas, uh, and and exchange of plant material because you know we can um, we can share material for the purposes of of conservation to grow them sometimes in in more suitable conditions than we have here at Kew. You know, we can send mm. a tropical plant to the tropics, for example. Mm. Um, and, and that helps to ensure the protection of those plants in the longer term. Um, that's as contrasted to people who go and, and collect plants illegally from wild populations and then sell them on the internet in, in ways that are usually illegal. So, mm-hmm. so you have that sort of trade going on, which often puts a plant at jeopardy in terms of survival because they're over-harvested and, and sold around the world. Mm. Yeah, and but but we are able to do it in a way that is that protects the plant, that is for the for the longer term good, and and share the knowledge and and educate people about the plants as well. It's really fascinating. It's really really encouraging to hear about that good work as well. Yes. So, Richard, um, obviously, I think when people think of Kew Gardens, they think of it as being a tourist attraction. You've obviously hit on all of the hard work that's going on behind the scenes, but can you tell us a bit more? Um, so, what I'd like to hear about is you've got the biggest archive of botanical information in the world, which I think people don't necessarily realise, as you've hit on, um, how much research you, you hold and how much training you're holding. Can you tell us a bit about what can be found in that collection and, and, and specifically how it's used? Sure. So so Q is a place of collections. I've spoken a bit about the, the live plants um, mm. The preserved plant collections, which are held in the herbarium, um, there's somewhere between seven and eight million specimens in that collection, many of which are actually the original type specimens, which means that when the plant was first described and given a name, that was the specimen that was used as the basis for the description, for the scientist to describe all the details of the plant, you know, all its parts, all its measurements, and say, and we'll call this plant acacia alpha whatever it might be so that's the type and they're very special ones so we have a lot of those in the herbarium and as i said around seven and a half or so million wow specimens so it's one of the world's larger herbaria Um, there's also a huge botanical library full of all manner of of books um, old ancient and and also modern a a huge collection of botanical artwork um, Mm. from from you know, again, dating back several hundred years, but also with a lot of contemporary work, mm-hmm. um, journals, documents, letters, you know, all manner of archives in there, hundreds of thousands of pieces. We have a DNA collection. We have, a, again, world's largest, I think, fungarium, so a collection of, of fungi specimens, um, bearing in mind that, that, you know, we think we probably know somewhere around maybe 90% of the world's vascular flora, the, the plants, you know, the flowering plants and conifers and so forth. And we probably think we know somewhere under 10% of the world's fungi flora. So wow. there's there's a huge realm yeah. of fungi out there that we actually have no idea about yet. So, so that's a big area of growth. Um, mm. Fungi, uh, wood, wood slide collection, there's, there's a, you know, the collections go on and on, um, yeah. but those are probably the main ones. And one of the things about it, you, you mentioned that people you know, understandably don't know all that's there because a lot of it is behind walls, behind doors. Yeah. It's not on public display. But one of our big projects that we're moving into, um, certainly um, planning and, and moving into over the coming 12 months, 
is to digitise all the herbarium specimens so that they will be publicly accessible um, mm. through, through the internet, digitised specimens with all the, the metadata, all, all the transcribed information that went on the original collector's label with that plant. So that will make the, the use of the collection, the value of the collection to people around the world sort of magnify many, many times because instead of, you know, I guess previously if you were a botanist who had a particular interest in a group of plants, you would pack your bag, jump on a ship or an aeroplane, come to Kew, go to the herbarium, open those cupboards, pull out those specimens and have a look yeah. at them. <laughs> Anyone around the world will be able to just log on and and, and look at the digitised images. Um, so So there's a... A huge benefit to that. It's it's a, a partly government-funded project, and uh, and it, and that should be completed over the coming three years. Um, so awesome. we're, we're really it's excited worth, about that. It's also worth saying. Unfortunately, um, listeners can't hit, uh, can't see this, but Richard, you're sitting in front of what looks like a gorgeous bookshelf of old, beautiful books. Um, it's yeah. yeah so, <laughs> so I'm going to just pull one out here. <clears throat> So these are the bound copies, I mean, amongst other things in the office, but these are bound copies of the Gardener's Chronicle, which was, it, it's the, it was the weekly horticultural journal stretching from the 1800s. In, in fact, the modern version is, is Horticulture Week, which is oh, this. Yeah, of course, so, so it yeah. is the same. Amazing. And, 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 you know, I, I quite like old things and I saved these from, from probably finding their way into a skip at some point, but... Recently, I had to try and find some information about one person, and the only place I could find it was in the old Gardener's Chronicles up behind me. So they they do have a use still. And of course, once you've looked up that thing, there's all the other stuff in there, which is (laughs) fascinating reading, I must say. People wrote rabbit holes, I'm sure. Many, many rabbit holes. Absolutely. And I, I, I love the idea that there's kind of, you know, all the almost all the history of what we know about flora and fauna, et cetera, is, is, is there in, in queue. That, and the fact that you're bringing that to the world as well is, is super exciting with the digitization scheme. Um, and I wanted to kind of talk a bit about some of the scientific work that you guys do as well, because we've talked about kind of protecting some species, but you also are world leaders in kind of plant science and and research as well and it, it, it you know we've actually got a new book called gardens of the world out q is extensively featured i think it might be the longest <laughs> extract in there and we've actually put it into our um we have different sections and we've called q a sort of innovator and an influencer because even though q has all of the history it's it's that kind of inspiration of like uh you know of some of the work that you guys do and particularly that kind of scientific element as well that i think um really kind of has moved on you know not not just like what it is to be a garden but you know how we study plants how we understand them across the world yeah absolutely i i think so there's a couple of important things there one is that you know, it, it, as an historical place, it doesn't mean that you, you, we don't go around wearing period costume and, and you know, riding a horse. You know, <laughs> gar- gardens evolve, landscapes evolve, practices evolve and, and issues evolve. So having that history of, you know, over 250, 260 years of, of endeavour gives us the credibility uh, um, and, and reputation to do what we do now. Uh, around mm. the world. So Q works, you know, scientists work with something around 130 partners around the world on a h- huge variety of projects down through the Millennium Seed Bank, collecting seed, 
um, uh, looking at food security in different countries and things like that. So it's a very global um, partnership relationship project and, mm. and it has become ever more so over, over recent decades. Um, that's probably the shift from, you know, the most significant shift from, from the queue of the uh, 19th century, say early 20th century, where, you know, queue was here as part of the broader Commonwealth of Britain and, and you know, getting plants from other countries and, and, and finding ways to, to get economic benefits. So it's a far more outward-looking, um, genuinely a, a collaborative and, and partnership approach taken around the world. And we have over 300 scientists working um, wow. both here and, and internationally. So genuine, you know, projects that actually deliver a huge amount of potential benefit, you know, looking for um, potential nature-based solutions to, to climate issues, um, looking at sustainability of future crops uh, and things like that. One of the recent um, really interesting stories was around coffee, um, we have uh, one or two people who've worked extensively on coffee over a number of years. Aaron Davies is, is the key person. And um, he was following up a, a, an old report of a, a species that was last spotted in the mid-1950s called Coffea stenophylla, um, which was reputed to have a better flavour than Arabica or Robusta, mm. but it was thought to have gone extinct. But he set off with, with some local partners in Sierra Leone into the mountains and they actually found, well, initially found one plant but then they moved over a couple of ranges and they found quite a good population of that plant which gives such huge potential for the future because it's, it's more drought tolerant than, than Arabica or Robusta and apparently it has, um, you know, resilience to higher temperatures. So, so the coffee crops in some areas are under quite a lot of threat from, mm. from rising temperatures and lower rainfall, but a plant like that can hold huge potential for the future. And, and of course, the coffee um, economically around the world, I think it's the second most valuable commodity on, on world market. So mm. it affects yeah. literally tens and tens of millions of people in terms of their livelihood. So, so that sort of work is, is, is really interesting. That, that that's really oh. fascinating i mean i knew that about coffee because it's come up in a pub quiz before i think weirdly but like um <laughs> but i mean actually have you actually tried any of the the coffee that was discovered in sierra leone yet no i haven't and that's a very good point actually i need to <laughs> i need to order one up put in an order right away that's uh, yeah, yeah 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 press pressing pressing matters for sure <laughs> uh but yeah it's brilliant to hear a little bit about um about the impact that q kind of has on the world as well and we're going to talk in the next section just a little bit about kind of the q over the past couple of years and you know what what visitors can look forward to as well coming up Ready for a next screen adventure? DK Witness's all new book, Gardens of the World, is the ultimate guide to the world's best gardens and green spaces, profiling 67 destination gardens that tell a unique story and have been instrumental in the history of design or reinvent what a garden means. Compiled by expert garden writers and green-fingered enthusiasts, each garden is brought to life through stunning photography and immersive descriptions exploring the incredible stories, people and plantings behind them, while horticultural tips inspire you to recreate their iconic styles at home. Find the book in all good bookshops or through the link in our episode bio. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So tell us, how has the pandemic impacted Q and more widely botanic gardens across the world? So uh, during the COVID pandemic, I mean, uh, like every, everyone's been affected by it. No mm. one has been immune. Um, we, we were closed for 10 weeks from uh, late March or mid-March, I think it was, until early June in, in 2020. Mm. Um, it, you know, I don't think we'd ever been closed for that long in, in our entire history. It was a great pity. I mean, it, it, you know, we, we could see people we could see people sort of standing at the gates wanting to come in and, and Luckily, when we were able to reopen under the government's guidelines, people flooded back in. And the thing that really came through, and I think it's not just us, more broadly in terms of public gardens and parks across the country and around the world, is how people felt that they needed that connection with nature and Mm. and the value that actually gardens like this provide just Mm. in being a sanctuary and being a place to restore people's spirits and, and, and just sort of, you know, be with nature. I think, you know, we, we'd known that that was important and, and we'd known that it, it was valuable, but actually it, it sort of was boosted tenfold when we saw the physical evidence of how much people cared about it. Um, so, so that for us was, was a real, well, it was quite, it was sort of both uplifting and, and quite emotional to see that, that, you know, we had such a strong place in, in people's hearts in the community. Um, and, and, you know, we, we know, you know, we know people love coming in here. We know generation to generation they'll come in. I, I love those stories where, you know, grandpa used to bring the kids in and then the kids bring their kids in. And, and yeah, so you, you have that sort of um, linkage across time. Um, so, so we, we, Obviously, during during the COVID lockdown period and all of that, we we had we kept working here because we need to keep the plants alive. I was going um, to say, like, obviously, you can't just stop with all, all no. the work that you've just talked about at all. Yeah, so so I mean, some of our lawns got a little bit hairy. Um, that it wasn't being mowed quite as often as it sometimes <laughs> is. Um, some of our staff got a bit hairy as well. But but. Um, <laughs> But, but you know, we, we did the important things and, and the most important thing was caring for the living collections and, and also for the other assets around the site to make sure that things didn't suffer damage through neglect. And then when we were able to reopen, while we mightn't have quite been to our, our normal standards in terms of, of overall horticultural presentation, at least we had the, 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 the essence of it well covered and then we are able to gradually work our way back up from there. I mean, obviously everyone both at Kew and, and more broadly around the world, you know, have been affected personally often, you know, with losses of, of relatives and family members. Mm. So, 
you know, we, we share everyone's sort of concern and, and um, you know, we, we, we are part of a community that has actually suffered a lot. So, mm. um, Absolutely. So, so, but again, having a place for people to come to, to reconnect, to join up, to, to get back on track has been really, really important. And, and in terms of visitation now, I mean, the year prior to lockdown was our busiest on record. We had close to 2.4 million visits that year. We're, we're pretty much back up to around 2 million at the moment. So, Great. so we are sort of coming back pretty strongly just, just currently. And I think what's missing at the moment is, is the full strength of, of international tourism Absolutely. Um, you know, it, there's a there's a, a percentage of that, but it's nowhere near the, the usual amount. And, and people who know far better than I do say it'll be another couple of years, probably if all goes well, before mm-hmm. that returns full strength. I mean, fingers crossed. Uh, certainly, one thing that I, well, many people have commented on the pandemic, and, and you've sort of alluded to there is people kind of, yeah, like placing this extra emphasis on green spaces and and becoming like you know reintroducing themselves to nature and i think you know it's almost like spending time indoors has made you more and more curious about the outside world and and actually you know not realizing what you've got until it's gone all of that Mm. stuff which you know there there are very few silver linings to the pandemic but you could almost say that you know people coming back in their droves and really kind of you know embracing outdoor spaces is maybe one of them yeah i mean i i think it you know with anything like that you you reassess what's important um Mm. And 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 you, you, when you don't have the opportunity to do something, it suddenly becomes very clear what it is you you really really want to do. And and sometimes it is just to go out and sit under a tree or what have you. And, and also, a lot of people who previously weren't necessarily um, endowed with great green thumbs, they became gardeners of one sort or another. You know, Absolutely. collections of indoor plants or in the you know window ledges, whatever. Growing plants has has really become more and more popular over the last few years which which again is fabulous particularly as often it's younger people yes so it's it's you know it's it's almost a, a thing isn't it to, to have a fabulous collection of indoor plants now yes. and i've seen some great examples of of, of houses apartments that are almost like a jungle inside <laughs> uh, which is great i mean wow what a Incredible. I think my flat is reaching that stage. I'm not sure my boyfriend's best pleased. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think you've got like not just lockdown gardeners, but people who really kind of you know try to you know you've got your banana bread bakers, your your, your amateur cooks, your uh, you know the people who've written novels, etc. And gardening is creativity, and it's a, it's a way of exploring the natural world that you can do at home as well. And yeah, uh, absolutely. I, and we know, I mean, through through the work here at the School of Horticulture and, and more widely, we get a lot of people who, who set out on a career, you know, the, the thing that they thought was the right thing to do. They've studied law, they've, you know, become a financial wizard, whatever it is, but they get to a point 10, 15 years down the track and they think, hang on a minute, you know, okay, this just isn't what I thought it was and, and I really don't enjoy it. I don't feel sort of spiritually enriched by doing this and then they look across and they see horticulture and growing plants and getting your hands in the soil and and understanding the biology of things and we get a lot of people sort of swapping careers and coming into horticulture at that point Um, we've had some people with amazing backgrounds and and first careers who've then just decided it's not for them and as I always say all roads lead to horticulture in the end so (laughs) (laughs) 
fantastic. Well, if you're listening to this and you think, hmm, maybe I need a change, then uh, some wise words. Some some great courses, yeah. Um, uh, So for, you know, going back to those kind of, uh, travelers who actually do want to visit Q, and let's hope those those visitor numbers get past those uh, those twenty nineteen levels. Um, when would be the best time to visit? What's going on at Q of the next year? Well, I mean, uh, as is the case often with guns, people say, "What's the best time?" And I always say, "This week." I mean, really, because <laughs> every week is different. You know, yeah. you, even in the midst of, of winter, it's a really sort of evocative and, and interesting landscape when you see the bones and the shapes of the trees against sort of dull grey skies. I'd rather see that than, than buildings against dull grey skies. Absolutely. A- any time of year. But um, we are, of course, now coming into the height of spring and, and then going into summer. Um, so that's a great time to be in any garden. And, and here at Kew, we have, um, we have sort of festivals, if you like, themed festivals. And, and the one that's kicking off at the end of May this year is under the heading of Food Forever. So it's a, a festival that's entirely themed around um, the sort of the, the, the nature of food in the world and, and the fairly fragile state of, of some of the food supply um, mm-hmm. issues. So, so you know, the, the billions of people who rely on a comparatively small number of food crops um, as compared to the huge potential of, of the plants that exist in the wild uh, that could be tapped into to... To, to, you know, even things up to, to create alternatives to, to ensure that people are, are properly fed into the future. So, so the festival has artistic installations around the site, it has exhibition aspects, it has a, a talk and demonstration project. There's a, a cookbook that's been launched, I think, in June, the mm-hmm. Kew Gardens cookbook, which is full mm-hmm. of um, vegetarian recipes from um, celebrity chefs of one sort or another. So there's a whole lot of stuff going on around that program. Mm-hmm from end of May through to late September. And then at that point, we kick across into the um, what will be a, a, a festival themed around Mexican culture. So our oh. autumn festival this year. Last year it was Japan. This year it will be Mexico. Um, so there will be a month of, of, again, Mexican culture, food, music, plants, um, maybe a little hint of Day of the Dead, I'm not sure. And, and then, of course, you get into Christmas again and before we know it, we're, we're back at this time of year because the, the year just whips by before you can blink. So there's always there's always a few things going on on the site. Um, you know, uh, there's always the gardens, there's always the glass houses, always the things, you know, day by day to come and visit. And then there's the other activities, the, the visitor sort of events and festivals and so forth. Um, I mean- both of both of those activities sound amazing, and I, I know in Mexico you've got quite famous gardens like Las Posas and and others. But it, like that region of Central America is so biodiverse and and has um you know kind of uh, I, I don't know like is it a certain percentage of the world's like flora and fauna? Oh, absolutely, yeah, hugely diverse. Uh, uh, that was it was the Edward James Garden, wasn't it, Las Posas? Um, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, We've had some discussions over time, I know, with them about uh, they're, they're wishing to restore some of the garden to, to its former glory. So, so, yes, again, partnerships around the world, sharing expertise, you know, providing the, the benefits of our understanding of things where it's helpful. Um, absolutely, that, that will continue. Fantastic. I, I have one final question. But do you, do you have like a favourite season at Kew Gardens or is every, does every season bring its own magic? <laughs> well, look... To be perfectly honest, I um, 
I come from a warmer place. And, <laughs> of course, yes. And a day like today is almost getting up to my operating temperature. And yes. sadly, in a whole year, it happens about twice. So, so for me, hot weather, hot, yeah. whenever okay. it occurs, I feel so much better. And, and of course, we're better than to be in a garden on a hot day. And then if you yes. really want to add a bit of temperature on that, you go into one of the tropical glass houses, the palm house, the, the water lily house to, to really push the humidity up and start sweating a bit. Um, but, but frankly, as I said, year round, because it's, um, because it changes so much, you know, you get a completely yeah. different feel, you know, the things relax in autumn, the leaves are blowing around. It's a completely different feel from that sort of very showy sort of spring, early summer period. Mm. Um, yeah. So I guess it's that. I guess I like the I like summer. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I've got to ask one more final question, and it's it's slightly unscripted. So don't don't. And you're obviously here to talk about Q, so don't worry if you don't want to answer it. But obviously, this is a travel podcast, and it sounds like you've worked with, been to so many gardens around the world. Is there kind of one favourite um, that isn't Q? Obviously, I, I know you're kind of like bound to it, or maybe Melbourne um, that that you would love to visit tomorrow. Um, well, so so ones I've been to that I really that, that were fabulous experiences. I, I probably just mentioned. Well, there's a whole lot, aren't there? But um, you know, Gardens by the Bay in Singapore. Yes. Have you yes. been there? I, yeah. I've never been there. I really want to go. No, I mean, I, it just looks incredible. Looks All of the amazing. pictures of it. Extraordinarily ambitious, completely over the top. Um, you know, just just amazing project which achieved what it set out to achieve. It's it's just you know it's almost mind blowing in in its sort of in its scope and 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 what they've done. So so that's I've been there. I was there when it was being built, and I went back after it was finished. But I'd certainly go back there in a heartbeat. Um, and also, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I've sort of ruled a line through Melbourne because I'm not allowed to nominate my. My, my home place. But actually, that's one of the nicest botanic gardens in the world. In fact, Arthur Conan Doyle said when he was sitting in the botanic gardens in Melbourne, this is the most beautiful place in the entire world. So, you know, it, it's pretty good. But what I was going to say a wise is, man. By wise man. The sister garden to, to that garden is, is one down at Cranbourne, and, and that's where a, a landscape called the Australian Garden was developed. And it's a very contemporary interpretation of Australian landscape and culture and and that is one I'd really recommend that that people take the time to go to if if they're visiting Australia because it's unlike anything else they'll ever see and and of course here in in good old UK you know there are so many good gardens there Mm. you know not only places like our own the RHS and, and others there's all those private gardens opened by the National Garden Scheme you know extraordinary beautiful gardens up and down the length and breadth of the country open every weekend, um, there's a selection open. So, you know, there you get the personal sort of gardening tastes and flavours and, and sort of quirks that, that you don't necessarily find in a big public estate. And, of course, Wakehurst down in Sussex, I'd be a fool to, to not mention them. It is a, such a beautiful place and they're doing some really, really interesting contemporary horticulture there. Their American prairie garden is certainly worth a visit at the moment. Wow, well, that, I mean, loads of great recommends there. That that was, uh, yeah, it was it was really really concise and and brilliant and and a real advert for kind of garden travel as well and getting out there and seeing and, and spending a weekend, especially you know it's brightening up now. Great. Time well, to one do of it. the things just on garden travel, I mean, you may or may not know that 
garden-based tourism brings into this country a huge amount of wealth. Uh, and I think mm -hmm. it, it's, it's broadly not recognised, it's underestimated, but it is worth a lot to this country. The reasons people come to visit the UK and how many of them come here with their mm -hmm. main their main activity is visiting gardens. It's, mm. uh, and, and I think the more people who know that, maybe the more then we, we value and respect the, the things that we have in front of us. Absolutely. No, it's, I think, um, as I say, we've got this new book all about kind of gardens of the world, but the UK ones are spectacular. There's, um, you know, obviously yourselves, but then, you know, from the Eden Project in the West to Sissinghurst in the East and then Garden of Cosmic Speculation in Scotland, which is a fantastic small one. Um, you know, there there's so much to see. So yeah, what better inspiration really to to get out there and, and do it than to hear it from yourself, Richard. That's fantastic. Yeah. It's and, my pleasure. And we won't uh, take any more of your valuable time going back to all of the many projects that you're working on. But um, uh, just to say thank you so much for joining us. Um, uh, it's been lovely talking to you. And, you know, really, hopefully it's inspired all of our visitors to, you know, get on the internet, plan their visit to queue and uh, get it in the diary because I certainly, for one, will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll be there, Richard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll see you there. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you so much. I really enjoyed the chat. Yeah, cheerio then. Thank you. Well, a huge, huge thank you to Richard for taking us to Kew Gardens and telling us all the things that they're working on. I really, really enjoyed that. I genuinely didn't want to stop talking to him. I mean, it was it was it was a massive, massive honour. And I know you're quite green fingered, Lucy. Um, yeah. And yeah, it's just it, it it's just inspirational to hear about all the work that they do yeah. about it you know it as a location as somewhere you can go visit and experience but kind of its impact all around the world i thought it was really really inspiring and thank you so much to richard and the team at q for for setting that up that was that was brilliant a huge thank you and if you want to learn more about q and the work they're doing you can visit their website www.q.org or you can follow them on instagram at q gardens and so we are back with a normal schedule next time uh, where we're normal services resuming uh, we're back on our cities and we are going to the wonderful foodie heaven you know we know our listeners love their food yes. we love our food yes. of Leon with uh, with Anna Richards yeah. who, who lives there and is taking us around that sort of the, the, the French capital gastronomy really uh, so we will very much look forward to that we will very much look forward to seeing you then listener and it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me and we shall see you very soon Where To Go was produced by the team at DK Witness and the wonderful Julia Baker it was presented by James Atkinson and Lucy Richards and mastered by Johnny Coddington at Bottle Bucket Recording for more information about DK Witness follow us on social media at DK Eyewitness or visit dk.com forward slash eyewitness and don't forget to please like, rate, review and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Your support means so much to us.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.